1: In the beginning, everything was perfect. Human beings lived in paradise in peaceful harmony with nature, each other, and themselves. They had no obligations, no arguments, no worries, and no suffering. But then, one day, everything went wrong. The humans were cast out of paradise and entered a world rife with conflict, sickness, and death. The reason? They ate the wrong thing. The story of Adam and Eve appears in several major religious traditions, including Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It begins with God placing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with everything they could desire and only a single prohibition. Do not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, they do. Eve is tempted by a serpent to eat the fruit, and then she gives it to Adam, and so God expels them from the Garden. This 2,000-year-old religious text has echoes in a surprising place—contemporary American diet culture. Are we also afraid we'll lose paradise if we eat the wrong thing? I'm Zachary Davis, and welcome to Season 2 of Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. Today we're examining the religious role that food plays in many people's lives, and how this affects our bodies and our minds. Food has always played an important role in religion. In Hindu cosmologies, Brahman cooked the world into existence, and no Hindu religious function is considered complete without the distribution of food. In traditional Chinese folk religion, ritual offerings of fruit and rice are made to gods and ancestors. Catholic mass is centered on the Eucharist, bread and wine believed to be transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. Some Muslims consume only food and drink that are halal, or permitted by Islamic law, while some members of the Jewish faith keep kosher. These dietary restrictions are not merely divine diktats. They serve broader purposes. For one, they help define the religious community. Many scholars argue that the dietary laws in the Torah are not primarily concerned with health or nutrition, but instead distinguish the Israelites as a people. In Leviticus, God declares, I have made a clear separation between you and the nations, and you are to make a clear separation between clean beasts and unclean beasts, and between unclean and clean birds. Alan Levinovitz, assistant professor of religious studies at James Madison University, explains the role diets serve in religious traditions.
2: Religions often define themselves um, and groups in terms of what they would and wouldn't eat. You found savages defined over and against Christians, uh, the Christian explorers, in terms of the fact that they ate ate themselves, each other, cannibals, right? So this was one thing that distinguished good Christians from terrible pagans. And that us-them, the use of food to establish a a metaphysical us-them, which in other words, a religious us-them, is everywhere. And I haven't found a religious tradition um, in which food is not in some way implicated in defining the self as opposed to the other and in terms of defining one's cleanliness. Along with creating community,
1: food is also used to subjugate the body and sanctify the soul. Fasting, for example, is a common religious practice. During Ramadan, a month-long period in the Muslim calendar, adherents abstain from food and water from dawn until sunset. A similar fast occurs in the Catholic tradition during Lent, the 40-day period leading up to Easter. St. Francis de Salle wrote in 1609 that fasting helps keep, quote, the sensual appetites and the whole body subject to the spirit of the law. But while religions have always had dietary practices, in recent decades, diets have become their own religion. Like religions, diets create community, set standards of moral value, and even promise salvation. Levenovitz first got interested in food and dieting by reading about ancient Chinese
2: dietary practices. In early Taoist literature, for example, people had all kinds of recipes for how to ensure long life, freedom from disease, flying, teleporting. I mean, it was everything, right? And they, they made the same kinds of promises that I see diet gurus making today. There was the same kind of variability in their prescriptions that we see today. And all of it was very countercultural. It was, don't eat what everyone else is eating, eat our special diet.
1: In his book, The Gluten Lie and Other Myths About What You Eat, Levinovitz shows that there's not a lot of scientific evidence that diets work as well as dietitians promise. Still, people remain attached to their diets because they can provide
2: a framework for moral values. And although science is an enormously authoritative language in our culture today. It has also defined itself in many ways as not being a a form of advocacy. Uh, It does not tell you what you ought to do. It just tells you what is the case. And so where do people look then? Where do they look for their values? Well, they need to look somewhere. And so diet culture provides a kind of crucible in which there is an alchemical transformation of scientific ises into ought statements, um, where people will say, well, this is what you ought to eat. Um, And hidden in that ought are all sorts of interesting theories about human flourishing and our relationship to the world. Theories of value are
1: especially prominent in what author Matt Fitzgerald calls cult diets. In his book, Diet Cults, he describes their traits. Cult diets claim to be superior to all other ways of eating. They demonize certain foods as taboo and they generate a strong fear of other diets and a strong emotional attachment to this one. These features mean that cult diets, like religions, become a source of social and moral identity. Since the weight loss program Weight Watchers was founded in the 1960s, America has witnessed a host of fad diets, including Atkins, South Beach, juice cleanses, clean eating, and paleo. Many of these have the cult characteristics Fitzgerald describes. Take Whole30, for example. This 30-day program is based on, quote, whole foods that are natural and unprocessed. Those adhering to the program can eat proteins, fruits, vegetables, and natural fats, but no dairy, grains, or sugar. Whole30 has several religious characteristics. First, it's monotonic, which means that there are no gray areas. Similar to kosher or halal practices, Foods in the Whole30 program are either clean or unclean, permitted or strictly forbidden. Second, it creates a community. Through the program's online forum, Whole30 members provide support and hold each other accountable. Third, the program promises total transformation. The supposed benefits include a healthier metabolism and digestion, a balanced immune system, fewer aches and pains, and higher energy levels. But the claims also go beyond help. The reason to start Whole30, the program says, is that it, quote, will change your life. Members are almost evangelical in their enthusiasm. One testimonial proclaims, quote, this has been so life-changing that I feel as though the whole world should know about it. Another directly connects the program's positive effects to her spirituality. Quote, God put it on my heart to treat myself with kindness and love, I decided to take the first step of this journey by doing a whole One blogger wrote, "...I loved Whole30. It was so good for me physically, of course, but it was also great for me mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually." It's clear that for these people, Whole30 is about a lot more than just food. It's a way to feel in control of your life. It's a set of values to live by. And it's a faith that radical self-transformation is possible. Whole30, like other cult diets, is not a fringe movement. Over 2 million people visit the Whole30 website each month. Hashtag Whole30 appears in 3.5 million posts on Instagram. The companion book has sold over a million copies, and it is currently number 16 on Amazon's bestseller list. In fact, three of Amazon's top 20 best-selling books are about dieting. An estimated 45 to 100 million Americans are on diets, and weight loss is a $60 billion industry. Behind this popularity is the belief that diets affect far more than our physical health. Isabel Fox and Duke is a health coach and expert on emotional eating. Many of her clients try to use diets to fix their entire lives. People are
0: so emotionally attached to the idea that they can diet their way out of whatever problems they're dealing with in their life. I mean, dieting really is kind of sold as snake oil. It's like, Oh, like, everyone will want to have sex with you. You'll be able to date everyone you, anyone you want. Your husband will never leave you. Everyone at the PTA meeting will think you're the best. You know, um, you'll be able to wear whatever you want. Everyone's going to look at you while you're walking down the street and just think, like, man, I wish I were her.
1: But Duke thinks the reason these diets are popular goes beyond the physical.
0: One of our deepest needs and deepest desires is social acceptance and love. Um, You know, the idea that I can get those very core deep need, emotional needs met through dieting, I think has like a very religious component, right? It's this idea that through dieting, I will be saved, my life will be transformed, I can be perfected through the attainment of thinness, and therefore
1: through dieting. The idea that the right diet can give us access to a quasi-divine power might seem absurd, but the relationship between food and morality has a long history. In Plato's Republic, Socrates links human decadence and decline to excessively luxurious food. One of Aristotle's cardinal virtues was temperance, the ability to moderate one's appetites, especially for food and drink. For early Christian fathers, one of the seven deadly sins was gluttony. But for most people in human history— the sin of overeating simply wasn't an option. Shortage of food, combined with the necessity of manual labor, meant that few people had to worry about eating more than they needed or becoming overweight. This started to change in America around the turn of the 20th century. New technologies, such as cars, and the growth of desk-bound, white-collar jobs led to a more sedentary population. Food became more widely available due to advances in food production, distribution, and preservation. For the first time, insurance companies started assessing the health risks associated with weight. But just as food was becoming more abundant in America, it became suddenly more scarce in Europe with the outbreak of World War I. When the United States entered the war in 1917, the government created the Food Administration to help provide European allies with food supplies. The administration's chief, Herbert Hoover, could have implemented a mandatory rationing program But instead, he relied on volunteer efforts stoked by patriotic propaganda. On posters, Lady Liberty implored, Be patriotic. Sign your country's pledge to save food. A small child saluted over the admonition, Little Americans, do your bit. Save the wheat for our soldiers. There was a strong religious rhetoric to these campaigns. The famous preacher Billy Sunday urged his followers to restrict their diets. Journalists declared food waste a sin and the Food Administration likewise preached, quote, the gospel of the clean plate. Hoover's tactic was clever. Voluntary rationing allowed Americans to feel virtuous about the sacrifices they were making for their country. In fact, the government's campaign suggested that voluntary self-control was the supreme moral virtue for Americans, because only citizens who could control themselves were capable of governing themselves. Restricting your diet demonstrated your ability to forego pleasure, discipline yourself, and responsibly wield power in a democratic political system. Not surprisingly, this new moral outlook accompanied a new outlook on beauty. Thinness became the standard for attractiveness, in part because thin bodies were considered virtuous bodies. When troops need food, one journalist declared, you, quote, cannot be fat and patriotic. Another urged, quote, lay your double chin on the altar of liberty. Fat was a sign of weakness and greed. Thin people, by contrast, had strength and self-control. The association of dieting, willpower, and patriotic responsibility didn't end with World War I. The rise of fad diets in the decades following the Second World War coincided with what some call a, quote, obesity epidemic. Everything from cheap, plentiful food to sedentary suburban lifestyles to television and computer games has been identified as a contributing factor— The National Institutes of Health reported that the percentage of American adults who are obese went from 13.4% in 1962 to 35.1% in 2006, with a sharp rise in the 1990s. Today, reports find that 69% of American adults are overweight or obese. These numbers have been made a moral and political issue, and officials have taken steps to fight back against the threat. Three months after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Tommy G. Thompson suggested that all Americans should lose 10 pounds, quote, as a patriotic gesture. Former President George W. Bush took up a national health campaign urging all Americans to exercise and practice good dieting with rhetoric that aligned health choices with moral values. We need to, quote, encourage a culture of personal responsibility, the president said. In 2006, then-surgeon general Richard Carmona claimed that our country's most pressing issue wasn't terror. It was weight.
0: Obesity is the terror within. It is destroying us, destroying our society from within. And unless we do something about it, the magnitude of the dilemma will dwarf 9-11 or any other terrorist event
1: that you can point out to me. So this is a terror from within. It's destroying us. Former First Lady Michelle Obama made weight and health similarly high-stake issues with her Let's Move initiative to combat childhood obesity. By her reckoning, quote, the physical and emotional health of an entire generation and the economic health and security of our nation is at stake. In views like these, Eric Oliver, author of Fat Politics, finds some of the core tenets of American political culture, writing, quote, that all people are fundamentally responsible for their own welfare that self-control and restraint are the hallmarks of virtue, and that all Americans are obliged to work at improving themselves. But there's a problem with claiming that we're fundamentally responsible for our own weight. It isn't entirely true. Researchers have found that obesity is caused primarily by genetics and the environment. Here's Isabel Duke again.
0: People believe falsely that their weight is in their exclusive control— Right, and that they just sort of muscle their way and willpower their way enough. If they work hard enough, they can achieve this dream of permanent thinness. And the reality of the situation is that, for a variety of reasons—physiological, biological, economic—for a variety of reasons, that's just not sim- that's simply not the case. Ninety-five percent of people are unsuccessful at dieting. Right? Because dieting is simply not biologically sustainable for most people. And that's not a willpower issue. That's not just like a lifestyle issue. It's literally physiological and biological.
1: The link between obesity and willpower is tenuous at best, but American culture continues to draw from religious concepts like sin and temptation to moralize about food and weight. In an interview with the Everybody podcast, Michelle Lelwica, the chair of the religion department at Concordia College, describes how America's religion of thinness appropriates religious language, rituals, and myths.
3: Traditional religions have communities and rituals. They have symbols and images. They have beliefs and moral codes. They have a salvation myth. So these are all elements of our culture's manic devotion to thinness, right? There's images that we become devoted to, some moral codes, foods you should eat, foods you shouldn't eat. There's even a sense of um, atonement that you need to do. You need to burn off those calories if you ate too much.
1: One reason we want to, quote, atone for our calories is that we are still struggling with the story of Eve. We still see bodily appetites as threatening to our spiritual values, and see women as especially susceptible to those appetites.
3: In the story, the downfall of humanity, you know, impurity enters the world. Sin enters the world. Shame enters the world. When what happens? When the woman eats. Despite the fact that the authors of that creation myth, we're not, you know, trying to send women a message that you need to be thin. There's definitely an association here going on, a symbolic association which has lasted throughout the centuries, that somehow women's appetites are dangerous. Somehow they're shameful. A woman eating is somehow, needs an apology or something.
1: When she interviewed women for her book, Starving for Salvation, Lowica found they harbored this sense of shame about their appetites. Here's a few representative quotes from her clients. One said, feelings of purity were much better than any fattening food. Another stated that good means to not have too many calories. A third confessed, I can't help feeling it is immoral to be fat. Many people take up cult diets because they are seeking to counter the, quote, immorality of weight, to find purity and salvation through food. But this goal often leads to the opposite result, a culture where food is a source of unhappiness. Isabel Duke explains. Now it's become
0: sort of a negative part of culture where it actually brings stress and anxiety um, because people feel so much pressure to you know, try and force their bodies to look a certain way. This creates just an enormous amount of anxiety and, and kind of neurotic behavior around food that we haven't always seen. There are academics like Paul Campos, for instance, he would make an argument that we now live in a disordered eating culture. The culture that we live in normalizes and encourages dieting, normalizes and encourages, you know, restricting food intake for the purpose of trying to make yourself look a certain way.
1: The idea that it's normal to diet and restrict is especially encouraged by advertising, which sells consumers a solution by exploiting a perceived problem.
0: Sales psychology basically starts with identifying the problems that people think that they have and really hammering them home and really, like, kind of leaning into um, describing people's greatest concerns and fears and, you know, problems that they're dealing with.
1: One such fear taps into the religious notion of purity.
3: A good, clean salad is so much more than green. Panera. Food as it should be.
1: The popular new trend of, quote, clean eating defines what is good by what is pure. Taken to an extreme, this can become orthorexia, a disordered form of eating that appears to be on the rise. It involves obsessive refusal to eat anything except foods considered to be, quote, clean. The word orthorexia was derived from the word ortho, meaning straight or correct, the same root word as orthodoxy. Other advertisements tap into another quasi-religious concern, the soul's competition with the body. In the Bible, Jesus tells his disciples that they must deny themselves in order to live. Pastor Steve Reynolds has made this concept the foundation of his Christian weight loss programs Bod for God and Losing to Live. Advertising reinforces the idea that you can achieve great spiritual values if you just shrink down your body.
0: Pride. Posibilidades. Self-esteem. Confidenza.
2: Not a number, but the way we want to feel.
0: Beautiful. Tell us, what will you gain when you lose?
1: Perhaps the most common fear ads play on is the idea that virtue is measured in calories. Pepperidge Farm advertises cookie temptations. Breyers sells gelato indulgences. Trader Joe's labels low-fat products reduced guilt. All of these food ads associate eating less with being good and eating more with being bad.
0: We're only human, but we try to be perfect.
3: Oh, cheesecake. Okay, what if I just had a small slice? I was good today. I deserve it. There are lots of things to feel guilty about. Think then isn't one of them.
1: Commercials like these effectively tap into widespread cultural anxieties about food and weight. An estimated 30 million Americans will be diagnosed with an eating disorder at some point in their lives. One 2008 study found that 75% of American women struggle with some form of disordered eating. Obsessive eating behaviors, a sense of self-worth based highly on their bodies, and anxiety around diet and weight that interferes with their happiness. Another survey found that as many as 97% of women think negative thoughts about their body each day. And one university study found that girls worry about being fat as early as three years old. Isabel Duke hears firsthand from her clients about the effects of this culture.
0: There's this feeling of shame coupled with fear. They create boundaries for themselves. Then they end up rebelling against those boundaries or breaking those boundaries and feeling
1: shame, guilt, awful. What are we feeling guilty about when we break our diets? If we're sinning, what are we sinning against? Corey Norman, a scholar of food and religion at the University of Wisconsin, suggests one possibility.
3: A guilt about a lack of control due to a kind of sacralized, uh, some would say idealized, I think we can say sacralized uh, image of what the body, particularly a female body, should be. And uh, if you violate that, uh, you're you're sinning against the culture and the cultural stereotype or standard of, of what you should be you may be sinning against your own kind of self-control and therefore your, your own internalized image of this kind of stuff.
1: That stereotype of the ideal body is constantly reinforced by cultural messages. Early 20th century diet gurus told readers there is, quote, no room for the fat woman in this age. Or, fat women can't be happy. They might as well be dead. Today, posts on Pinterest read, losing weight is hard. Being fat is hard. Pick your hard. Or, 10 Reasons for Weight Loss, To Love Myself Again. These messages have real effects on the way people live their lives.
3: I was so frustrated because I was always so obsessed about eating the right things, um, about not eating the unhealthy food and, you know, really being very angry with myself if I did.
0: I really wanted as well for my body to not be a problem for me, to not feel ashamed of my my body and you know, always wanting to cover up. I just wanted to
3: not care. It was it was really difficult. It's it had been difficult all my life. It seemed like my whole life's purpose was to just finally get to a so called goal weight and then my life could start.
1: These testimonials come from women who decided to seek help. They wanted freedom from diet culture. They were tired of feeling like food or the lack thereof had become the dominant source of value in their lives. Starving yourself, right? Successfully
0: dieting, even if you're not binging, even if you don't rebound, is an incredibly painful, small way to live. You're living constantly thinking about food. You are obsessing about food all the time. It is a full time job to manage the minefield of not eating. This is not a happy life that people are living. They typically have very little going on in their lives outside of managing their food. They're not going out to dinner with their friends. They're not able to focus at work. They're not able to focus or be present in relationships because thoughts of food are consuming your brain. You are sacrificing quite a bit of your sanity, even if you get the status, right? Even if everyone's like, you look great, you're so gorgeous, da, da, da. right? It's like, okay, great. I just got the status. I just got the pat on the back. But think about what I'm paying
1: for that. There can be all kinds of benefits to changing the way you eat. Nutrient-rich foods can help you feel and function better. And for some health conditions, diet can make all the difference. For example, celiac sufferers who eliminate gluten from their diet will experience miraculous improvement to their well-being. But before we pledge discipleship to a new diet, we should consider what we're paying for it. Perhaps one of the greatest costs is believing that you have a permanent enemy, yourself. This belief, too, has a religious legacy. Many spiritual texts represent the human person as divided into warring parts. Reason versus appetite. Soul versus body. Willpower versus temptation. You can never escape this enemy. You just have to keep fighting it. Diets, advertisements, and social media reinforce this message every day. We do face constant temptations to hoard resources instead of giving it to others to repeat gossip instead of sharing kindness. We're often divided between good and bad desires, but we don't have to map that division onto our bodies. We don't have to see the body as an appetite to be suppressed, a project to be perfected, or an enemy to be conquered. We can see it as our friend and ally, biologically designed to sustain us so we can pursue what matters. Food should be a blessing in our lives, not a curse. Rather than obsessing over the shape of your body, Obsess over the shape of your character. Instead of focusing on physical hunger, hunger for virtue, justice, truth, and beauty. In her poem, Autobiography of Eve, Ansel Elkins gives a new ending to the story of Eve taking the apple. Let it be known, I did not fall from grace, I leapt to freedom. This episode was produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, and Pallavi Kuthamasu. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast... You can support us by sharing the show with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I want to tell you about an episode of the Hub and Spoke podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, from Vassar College professor Barry Lamb. The episode, The Self and Survival, tells the remarkable story of reincarnation, the mind-body question, and the self. If it sounds heady, it is, and it's definitely worth a listen. Check it out at hifination.org. That's h-i-p-h-i-nation.org, or anywhere podcasts are available.
2: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.